If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Look, a lot's been said and, and written about how Canada responded to this pandemic, how prepared we were for this pandemic. But I think up until now, a big part of the story has been left out. So this is some important work from the Globe and Mail. And it's, look, I mean, it, it makes for some frustrating reading, too, that perhaps we could have been better prepared for this pandemic. Because Canada had in place what was really a, a world-class surveillance network, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, as described in this article, it was among Canada's contributions to the World Health Organization, and it operated as a kind of medical Amber Alert system. Its job was to gather intelligence and spot pandemics early before they began, giving the government and other countries a head start to respond. So that's ideally what you would want to have in place when something like this coronavirus and COVID-19 emerges. Unfortunately, it, it essentially wasn't there, or at least a, an important part of this network wasn't there when we needed it most. You can read more at theglobeandmail.com. But joining us uh, to talk more about this uh, investigative piece, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Grant Robertson is a senior writer with uh, The Globe and Mail or theglobeandmail.com. Grant, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell us a bit more about the um, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network. Uh, under where, under what department did it operate? Tell us a bit more about what its its job was. Well, and by the way, that was a, that was a great summary of the article leading in. Um, it, it 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 sets the table nicely for this discussion. What what the the, the Global Public Health Intelligence uh, Network. Uh, it, is it's known by its, its acronym GFIN within government, but it's a very little known uh, unit within the Canadian government. Um, you know, sort of operates on its own and had always been set up as an independent body to 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 go uh, look for signs, early advanced signs of problems around the world, and it helped the WHO in this capacity. And it was also there for Canada. Um, it exists within uh, the public health agency. Uh, and then within there, there's a department called the Center for Emergency Preparedness, uh, and it lives inside that. Uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I guess I'm kind of speaking of it in the past tense, but I mean, it still technically exists, doesn't it? It still technically exists. What's interesting is, of the people that did know of its existence and, and what it did and, and, you know, its reputation around the world, when the pandemic hit and Canada seemed to be caught off guard by it and, you know, a little, you know, behind the curve in January and into February and the sense of urgency wasn't there, um, you, know, you know, the government faced criticism for that. People who knew of this unit and some of the people who helped build it started to wonder, well, where did GFIN go? Uh, where was its role here? And then when you started asking those questions, uh, what you found out was that GFIN's alerting capacity has essentially been turned off uh, last May. Uh, it, it had issued over the past decade more than 1,500 alerts. Uh, and these were things, you know, that not all of them led to uh, a problem. Some of them were, you know, small blips on the radar that they were just alerting uh, countries uh, around the world and the WHO too and, and authorities within Canada, you know hey, we see this thing happening in Iran or this thing happening in Russia or South America. Let's keep an eye on it. Um, the last alert it sent was uh, about an outbreak in Uganda that killed two people uh, last May that ended up not spreading, but it was a, a good example of the sort of things it kept an eye on. And then all of a sudden it went silent. So we had 10 years of GFIN doing what it was supposed to do, 2009 to 2019, and then, as you say, something abruptly changed as of last May. Do we know what that is? Uh, 
Well, essentially, over the past two successive governments, this is both the conservative government and the liberal government, um, there was an eye towards GFIN that said, what does this thing really do? Why are we, you know, looking all over the planet for problems? Should we not just focus on Canada? And, you know, as, as in any government department, there's always pressure on, can we make cuts here? Can we make cuts there? So GFIN was a, I describe it in the article as a, as a department that was run by, um, or, uh, that was populated by doctors and really highly specialized epidemiologists who operated in a multitude of languages and were good at, at, at looking around the world for potential problems, but it was largely misunderstood by government. So uh, the past two governments weren't sure what to do with it, and eventually uh, when the liberals took over in 2015, they, they thought, well, uh, the bureaucrats within the department thought, well, why don't we have this working on domestic projects? And two examples in the article that I give of that are, you know, well, let's, let's have GFIN studying the effects of vaping and the effects of um, the spread of syphilis in remote communities. Now, from a public health perspective, those are both worthy projects uh, in their own right. But what it did was it took the analysts that work in GFIN away from this international focus that they had had since GFIN was essentially started after the SARS outbreak. Now, it becomes a counterfactual, obviously, at this point, but based on what we know about GFIN and the work it did, do we have an idea of what it might have looked like come December, January, uh, if it was still functioning as it was before last May and as this, this novel coronavirus started to emerge? Mm-hmm. That, that gets a bit difficult, but we can hypothesize because we can look at past outbreaks over the past 20, 30 years uh, and look at what GFIN did during those and the impact it had. Uh, so GFIN goes back to the 90s when um, Canada was sort of caught off guard um, by, there was an outbreak in India of, of the plague. And this caused panic in the city of Surat, India, and people started fleeing the city. Some of those people got on planes and they uh, and some of those planes were headed to, to Canada. And the staff at Pearson Airport in Toronto were threatening to walk off the job because they did not want this plane to land. And so Ottawa had to rush uh, quarantine people to Toronto to handle this situation and basically calm everybody down, essentially. This was in 1994. And what they realized is we need early warning. So they built this early warning system which scans the Internet, which scans local articles from news organizations, data, health data, economic data will tell you about potential health threats. For example, uh, if there's a disruption in hog futures, that might tell you if there's a hidden swine flu outbreak. We're talking about small signals like that that they bring together and interpret. And what we've seen in outbreaks over the past, uh, GFIN was active in tracking early outbreaks of Zika. The 2009 H1N1 outbreak was actually discovered uh, by, by Canada. So what Canada noticed was that there was strange symptoms being reported in, in Veracruz, Mexico, uh, and that there was reports of uh, stores there running out of bleach and running out of uh, disinfectant products. But the Mexican government wasn't talking openly about this problem, but they noticed this flare-up. And so they started tracking it, and they realized there's a bigger problem there. They alerted the WHO. The WHO went to Mexico, and Mexico admitted they had an outbreak of H1N1. And then the world was able to start preparing for that, start looking at containment of that. And as we know, the 2009 H1N1 outbreak wasn't as bad as what we're facing now. So we can look at examples like that and say, we don't know the effect it would have had on this one because this, this coronavirus is um, unlike anything we've seen. But it would have helped probably prepare governments days or weeks earlier than they were, and it would have helped increase the urgency of the response, and that's the key thing that everybody says. The epidemiologists say if you have more urgency early on, you can have a huge impact just by acting days or weeks earlier. Now, what about the response then from from the public health agency, both in terms of, you know, the the change in mandate uh, and the impact of that change, and also whether maybe this is now going to refocus back to to international surveillance? What what have they said? Not a lot so far. Is that right? the The big question will be, 
is GFIN going to be uh, alerting again? It, will it have its, its, its duties handed back to it? What essentially happened was they required the, the analysts, the specialized epidemiologists and doctors inside GFIN, they said, okay, if you're going to alert something from now on, you need to get senior management approval. It became very bureaucratic. What that essentially did was suffocated the alert system uh, so that it didn't work anymore. And after May last year, they just stopped alerting. So the big question now is, will they be handed that ability back? Will it operate um, the way it used to again? Now, when I first started asking questions of public health about why the alerts had stopped and why it, it had essentially stopped doing the job it was built to do, the first answers I got back was that it hadn't stopped alerting. And then I had to tell them, well, you know, we've, we've obtained a decade's worth of records that show the pace of alerts, and then they suddenly stop last year. And after that, they said, well, um, alerts can still happen. They just need senior government approval. Um, so essentially, they were arguing to me, well, they, they didn't, the alerts haven't stopped. They, they could still go on, but they haven't been doing any of them. It's a very confusing answer. Um, mm-hmm. So we're waiting to see what happens now. Well, it's an important read, uh, quite a deep dive, uh, theglobemail.com. Grant, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Grant Robertson, uh, senior writer at The Globe and Mail and uh, author of this piece, uh, theglobeandmail.com, on how Canada's world-class pandemic alert system failed. It is a bit of a sobering read. I mean, it's hard to know what things would have looked like had we still had this in place. I mean, we can look to countries that, that really responded early and aggressively. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand even, Germany. Um, and again, I mean, you know, Canada still has fared relatively well, certainly compared to, to the U.S. and some other countries. But it's, it's not enough to say, well, we still did okay. If we had something that could have improved our response then there needs to be some hard questions asked about why that wasn't functioning. What decisions were made that, that led to that tool not being there? And it's interesting, too, because, look, there's, there's obviously been a lot of uh, frustration expressed about the World Health Organization and how they responded. But what you learn from this article is that, you know, early on, the World Health Organization was trying to sound the alarm even by late January. Uh, for example, as, uh, as the piece reads here, with the situation evolving rapidly, Canada revisited its risk assessment in a January 24th situation report and said the threat remains low. Okay, fair enough. But that risk assessment grew even more conspicuous just four days later, January 28th, when the WHO changed course and declared the risk to the world was high. But Canada didn't budge. Two days later, January 30th, Canada said the risk remains low. So that, that's pretty telling. And so what would have been different if GFIN, as it's known, uh, had still been functioning as it was supposed to? So, as I say, this, this is a, an aspect of the story that really hasn't been talked about or covered before. And again, look, this, this was a global problem and, and was going to continue to be. This isn't a case of whether we would have had a pandemic or not, but it certainly would have affected Canada's readiness or preparation. I suppose for some, maybe there's no need for sports right now. Maybe we got bigger issues to deal with and, and sports can wait. I, I get that perspective and I understand that, that people are of that opinion. At the same time too, though, I think there's a lot of people that are really craving that. Just having that sense of normalcy, being able to sit down in front of the television uh, you know, on a Saturday night and watch a hockey game that's actually new and happening and not some classic game from you know 20 or 30 years ago. I do think people are missing that sense of normalcy in their lives. And so I think there's a real clamor for that kind of return to normalcy. The question is, I guess, can it be done safely? And we've seen, for example, take the NHL, the amount of planning that has gone into this hub city model and all of the various phases. It's been a mammoth undertaking that so far has has actually gone pretty well. And so we see, though, now today in the news about Major League Baseball is that there's a lot of potential pitfalls when it comes to resuming sports. And so the 
season that just begun for Major League Baseball is now all of a sudden up in the air. With 14 members of the Miami Marlins having tested positive, the Philadelphia Yankees game tonight's been canceled because now there's concern about the Phillies because they just played the Marlins, etc. You've got problems in Major League Baseball. So it's a reminder that, yes, sports wants to come back, but the virus hasn't gone away either. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program our friend Scott Stinson, national sports columnist with Post Media, much more at nationalpost.com. Scott, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. No, Scott, there we go. Scott, you there? Yep. Yep. Oh, perfect. There we go. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. Let's let's start now with the news then uh, regarding Major League Baseball. Sure. I mean, you know, they were taking a, a much riskier approach, obviously, and having teams going from city to city, et cetera. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but what did you make of the news today? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm surprised that it happened so fast. I think we all, anybody who's paid any attention to these scenarios that the various leagues are doing has had an eyebrow raised at the Major League Baseball plan because there's really not much of a plan at all. They have limited some travel. Um, they're doing things like sanitizing baseballs and encouraging mask wearing and things like that, but they're also not putting any restrictions on what their players and staff are doing uh, in terms of outside of the ballpark. So it was kind of an honor system of, hey, you know, do your best to keep safe. And that is very different than what we're seeing with the NHL and the NBA and MLS in terms of really kind of bringing people into a a bubble, making sure that they're tested before they arrive, and then sort of saying you're going to be here for three months potentially, and this is the best way to keep you safe is to make sure you're not coming in contact with the wider public. Um, What we're seeing in baseball is – Certainly in the case of the Miami Marlins, it would appear that, you know, basically before they even started playing games, somebody on that roster had contracted the virus. And obviously being from Miami, uh, that's not a huge surprise given the the levels of um, new rates of infection there. So, yeah, it looks like kind of the worst case scenario has happened almost immediately, which is there's been a large outbreak in a single team. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure where baseball goes from here. I mean, can the Miami Marlins field enough of a competitive team in the next couple of weeks um, while they wait for these players who are presumably now quarantined to be out of quarantine? Will the numbers get worse on the Marlins? Will they get worse on another team? It's just like, this is frankly the scenario that nobody really wanted to consider. And it's arrived and smacked them in the face right off the get-go. Well, that's the thing. And plus, you get the, the teams traveling, too. So, I mean, what, yeah. do we know where the Miami players are? Because they just played in Philadelphia, didn't they? They're still in Philadelphia. Are they? <laughs> they okay. they so. basically announced after yesterday's game, which is already very obvious they should not have played yesterday, but they went ahead despite having, I think, four positive tests. And then as of this morning, it's 13 or 14. So they basically realize that they're going to wait until they now they're doing additional testing. And, and the Phillies, the little Phillies who they played yesterday, are also doing additional testing. But the problem we're seeing with this approach is, again, already apparent because, you know, say the Phillies have a clean bill of health with today's testing results. Well, that's not to say they don't they don't have players who've contracted it because, as we know, with this virus, it can sometimes take a few days before right. between a, a positive person who is positive and a person who tests positive. So already, they would seem to me that the Phillies probably shouldn't be playing anybody for a few days until they can be very confident that they didn't contract it when playing against a team that had a bunch of positive cases. So, you know... There's there's what the what's going to happen with the Phillies, what's going to happen with the teams they were supposed to play because their games are being postponed now. There's the Marlins are supposed to play the Baltimore Orioles and those games have been postponed now. So, uh, you know, it's they're basically doing it one game at a time. But but I got to assume that it's going to be more than one game that is that is scratched off the schedule, and then that raises all sorts of questions. It's interesting too because you know, for example, today uh, the English. Premier League, the Soccer League in yes. England, announced that they had zero positive cases mm-hmm. for the week of testing, uh, July 20th through t- the 26th. So the English Premier yeah. League just wrapped up their season yesterday, 
Mm-hmm. And they were kind of doing what Major League Baseball was doing. They had teams going from city to city, playing in, in stadiums, but just yeah. with no fans. Was it a case of maybe just that the, the pandemic is, has improved more so in the U.K. than it has in the U.S.? Or is Major League Baseball a little more complacent than maybe some of these European leagues? What do you chalk that up to? Good guess. Um, look, there were the initial reports in England as well of, you know, they did their rounds of tests when the players first kind of regrouped back at their home sites. And there was maybe a half dozen positive tests one week and seven the next week. And then it went basically three, two, one, zero, and they've had zero for several weeks since. So it was almost like once they had a couple positive tests, they sort of realized, okay, seriously, guys, you have to be careful. But I don't think you can get away from the fact that the situation in England is dramatically different than the situation in certain U.S. states, right? Like, we can we can imagine that it's a, it's a case of all the players in the English Premier League were very careful and went home after their games and didn't go to house parties. But it could just as easily be they did some of those things, but they did them in an environment where there wasn't a whole lot of community spread of the disease any longer and you know as anybody who's looked at at the numbers from the states i I just think in places like georgia and arizona and florida and california and nevada like there's been so many of these um pretty large-scale outbreaks that assuming the baseball team or a bunch of baseball teams could kind of skate by um, now seems like perhaps fanciful. I mean, we don't know, and that'll be interesting to see what, what the results of this is. Perhaps the Marlin situation is as simple as they traveled in an airport and therefore they they sort of innocently caught it. Could also be that somebody in the Marlins went to a you know house party or a bar mm-hmm. or something like that, and and just as has obviously happened with many people in the state of Florida, kind of contracted it not knowing that they contracted it. So. Whatever the explanation is, the result of what has happened is it has shown that the Major League Baseball system just simply isn't tight enough to account for something like this. And this could quite easily have happened to a soccer team in England or Spain or Germany, but it didn't. It's happened in baseball, and I guess we'll sort of wait to see why that was. Uh, I mean, look, it, it, it does raise a question. I know it's something that's some months away, and the NHL and NBA are really focused on the here and now, but... Yeah. The idea is we'll have the hub city model, we'll finish this season, we'll you know crown a champion, and uh-huh. then we'll we'll start to think ahead to next season. And you know, given the issues with the border still, given what's happening in Major League Baseball, I mean, maybe things will be great by December or January, but that that seems wildly optimistic. It it does raise some questions about what next season looks like for the for these leagues too, doesn't it? It does. And um you know, just the fact that this whatever happened with the Marlins seems to have gone through the team so quickly um, has to be a cause for alarm in terms of how these teams and these leagues will be able to operate in a non-vaccine world. Because, you know, we've always kind of felt like they were at risk of high rates of transmission given the proximity they have to one another. I mean, Baseball isn't even really that much of a contact sport relative to football or hockey or basketball. And yet this one team seems to have had a major outbreak like right off the jump. So that suggests to me that whether it's traveling on a, on a, on a bus together or it's the fact that they're sharing a dressing room or a shower or any number of other things, it was clearly a situation where there was a, a very easy and, and rapid spread of, of the virus in a matter of days. And and I think that is going to be true regardless of of whether you're doing bubbles and non-bubbles and those kind of things. So so the bubbles, I think, will kind of prevent it by hopefully, in, in the case of those leagues, keeping the virus out. But obviously the bubble scenario is not a permanent solution, and they would never dream of doing it for you know, the eight months of a season as opposed right. to the two to three months of this season. Well, and the NHL showing it's it's doable. I mean, obviously, tomorrow, we'll, we'll, I think tomorrow, we're expected to get the test results from today, now that all the players have arrived in the hub cities, and, and assuming yes. that they still have zero cases. Um, right. You know, that, that, that that's a big accomplishment. There's been a lot of intricate planning that's gone into this, and it looks mm-hmm. as though maybe the NHL might be able to pull it off after all. 
It does. And the NHL, I mean, they kind of have two things in their favor. A, they've got this bubble that is, as you've seen, pretty uh, strict. I mean, the, the temporary fencing that's going up around the hotels and the arenas, like they are not screwing around in terms of checking uh, of the access of people to inside the bubble. So once they've got to kind of establish that everybody is, is COVID free inside of it, they're, they seem to be doing the right things to ensure that that carries on. And then they also happen to be in two communities that have pretty low red rates of community spread right now. It's not necessarily perfect, but you know, even if you do kind of have somebody who manages to slide through the, the security, the likelihood of that person being contagious is pretty slim. Certainly a lot more slim than it would be in, you know, Miami, (laughs) to use the present example. So the NHL possibly by fluking into kind of not deciding on their hub cities until late in the process has now got themselves a couple of hub cities where they can feel pretty confident, uh, you know, the virus isn't super present outside their doors. And, and just a thought on, you know, and, and you had a piece on the weekend on, on whether these games matter. And I mean, you know, for me as a fan, I mean, I'm looking forward to watching this, but I think it's also going to be a little surreal at the same time. A reminder that we're not in usual times, even though this is meant to give us some sense of normalcy. I mean, what's your sense of, you know, the, the likely reception to all of this in terms of fan engagement or even the, the legitimacy of it all? Do, yeah. do these games matter? I, you know, I think ultimately once the games happen, people will enjoy them and get into them in the same way they did previously. I mean, we, you've touched on the English Premier League thing, for example, and that was one where there was a lot of the same questions about should we be playing football? And then once they started playing it, you know, people were into it this past weekend, I think in the same way they would previously have been. You kind of get used to it. The one thing I do wonder particularly in, in our sports, when I say our, like the North American sports, they've they've made some weird concessions to ensure that they can get these these weird playoffs, you know, seasons crammed in there. And it does make me think, like, if, a, if the Boston Bruins lose in the first, I guess they're not because they're not playing in the initial thing, but if you have, like, a big upset, the Pittsburgh Penguins lose to the Montreal Canadiens in the quote-unquote qualifying round of the playoffs, mm-hmm. Does that mean the Canadians are a great team and the Pittsburgh Penguins are overrated? Like, of course, I just don't see how you can apply any of the normal sort of post-match analysis to these games because we just have no idea the condition these teams are in, who's struggling with the bubble, you know, protocols and who's fine with it. And it just adds so many weird scenarios to this. I mean, I think the games themselves can be enjoyable and fans can get into them, but... I do, and I'm not even arguing that there should be an asterisk for the team that wins the cups and the title, but I just think it's going to be a weird thing, and, and we won't really have any sense of of how abnormal it is, uh, you know, even when the season is over. It's going to be weird. Well, it is, yeah. It almost feels like a, a whole new season, doesn't it? It's been so long since teams have played. I don't know yeah. that how much of that's going to carry over into this. So. Maybe it makes it un- a little more unpredictable, I suppose. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah, kind of I mean, yeah, I thought, honestly, it, it could be this could easily be the most unpredictable in any sport, you know, uh, postseason you're going to get because I, I just think we just have no idea. The teams that were good four months ago might be have all sorts of different issues than we imagined them, and I think you know, all it's kind of like a giant reset button, and we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Uh, much more is mentioned, nationalpost.com. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Here. Thanks, Rob. Have Take a good care. day. You too. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist, Post Media. Uh, his thoughts on uh, everything that's going on in the world of sports. And, yeah, even just, you know, from a, the um, sports analyst sort of perspective, right? I mean, what's been going on since March? Whatever the standings were then, right? Who's been working out hard for the last few months as opposed to who's been, you know, sitting around playing video games? So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you just kind of almost throw out a lot of the season up until this point, and th- there is some element of unpredictability. But aside from that, the ability, though, to to execute this plan uh, so far has is, is gone well. And I think the NHL is just sort of holding its breath through today and tomorrow, now that everybody's arrived, another round of testing. And if that all comes back good, then, then I think it'll probably be mostly smooth sailing going forward just in terms of how they've set this all up. But we'll see. Uh, I think the Oilers and Flames are set to play an exhibition game tomorrow night, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the games that count get underway this weekend. 
So like I say, two weeks ago, before I took off for vacation, this wee charity uh, scandal swirling around the government was already bad enough for them. And it certainly didn't get any better over the subsequent two weeks. Now, it'll be interesting to see the, the turns this story takes this week as the prime minister, as chief of staff, the founders uh, of We Charity all testify before the Commons Finance Committee. Uh, but certainly what's emerged about the Trudeau's uh, connection to this charity, now the finance minister, Bill Morneau, and uh, accepting this free travel, I mean, this, this is not a good look by any stretch on, on the government. But the question becomes, does any of this matter? You know, we're dealing with a, a pandemic, right, a, a historic deficit, unemployment. There's a lot going on. There's a lot for people to worry about. So are people paying attention to this? I know the government's probably hoping they aren't. But some new numbers out from the Angus Reid Institute suggest that maybe people actually are. Not that it's top of mind for Canadians, but... You know, a lot of us are able to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. We can pay attention to multiple issues. So people do seem aware of this issue, do believe it's a serious issue, and have some concerns about how the Trudeau government has responded. That's reflected as well in the approval numbers for the prime minister. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, what these numbers tell us about uh, how Canadians are feeling about this and other issues. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Shachi Curl, who is Executive Director at the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Uh, certainly, and, and these are important numbers, I think, because we've been hearing that question for a little while now. I mean, is this resonating with Canadians? Are Canadians paying attention? So what, what do these numbers tell us? Oh, yeah, they are paying attention. This, this is certainly, uh, jabbing them, uh, in, uh, in soft and sensitive areas. Look, uh, there's often a, a view that in the middle of summer, people are checked out. They're in their hammocks. They're, they're reading Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a different year. Um, and what often happens is that you get a, uh, a story of the summer, regardless uh, of, of uh, when, what, what normal circumstances are. There's usually one runaway story that galvanizes everyone. It's often not political. It's often something a little bit goofy or a little bit celebrity-driven or maybe human interest-driven. In this case, uh, when the headlines for the last five months uh, have really only been about one topic and one thing, and that's the coronavirus, uh, we're now into a period where there is a little bit of a vacuum of appetite for a political story. And uh, this is certainly a political story. You add to that the fact that this is the third time the prime minister has found himself and his government has found itself in trouble over conflict of interest issues. Uh, you combine that with the fact that uh, uh, he's only just started to to climb out of the annoyance that Canadians were feeling for him uh, post-SNC-Lavalin. And this has all the markings of something that does have legs and will run for a while. That said, Canadians are also, I think, pretty resigned and pretty cynical that at the end of the day, even if they're paying attention, even if they are feeling all the feels on this, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be something that proves catastrophic or fatal for this government. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, Trudeau's own approval numbers, and, and he and, and a lot of the premiers, too, sort of had this almost kind of a rally around the flag effect uh, at the outset of this pandemic. Canadians kind of rallied behind their leaders, and we saw that reflected in, in some polling numbers. But clearly, a lot of that's worn off. And in fact, this poll shows that even just the last month, a lot of Canadians have, have kind of soured on, on the prime minister, at least their opinion of, of him has worsened. In the short term, this this scandal has certainly uh, obliterated uh, any any gains he's made because of that that uh, uh, beyond politics rallying that Canadians uh, did around his response and and their and their general government, whether it's their provincial government, their their public health officials, uh, you know, in their response towards COVID nineteen. We had a post-political moment over the spring where people realized, you know, we're dealing with life and death. This is so much more important uh, than than mere party politics. Uh, but now you're into a period of time where they are re-engaged on this issue. How long will they stay engaged on this issue? Some of that has to do with 
uh, for how long it will continue to dominate headlines. It's going to dominate headlines this week. This week you've got the PM poised to testify on the matter. You've got former chair Michelle Douglas uh, poised to testify as to why she left the WE organization. So uh, it is going to make for a week of not great headlines for this government. I suspect they know that. They're alive to it. They know that there will be further softening of, uh, of support or approval for the prime minister at the end of all of this. But I would also suspect that they're going to take a bit of a uh, uh, of an offensive. They're going to go on the offense a little bit here and say, look, uh, we may have completely mishandled the way this this uh, contract was was awarded. This was obviously not the right way to do it. We realize that now. Of course, you wonder why they didn't realize it to begin with, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get to a point where they're going to go back to their base and say, look, we screwed up. We're sorry. We do that from time to time. You know that about us. But ultimately, you know, where where are you going to go? Where are you going to take your vote? And for left-of-center voters um, in places like British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, they are going to then look at the other options available to them and say, we don't really like what we have. We don't like what we've, what we've seen in terms of opposition leaders. That was what decided the last federal election. In the end, it was not the ballot question and the referendum was not on Justin Trudeau and SNC-Lavalin. It was on Andrew Scheer and a lack of a climate plan and a lack of, of an ability to talk about uh, issues other than social values issues. And that is what turned the tide back to Trudeau. So the final chapters of this particular saga on We Charity are not going to be written by the Liberal government or by Justin Trudeau. They will be written by whomever becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party, and we'll know that in just under a month. Much more at angusreed.org. Shachi, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. Uh, Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reed Institute. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Liberals are doing uh, all kinds of polling themselves, so I don't know what they're saying, but if they're looking at this one, there's not a lot there to get encouraged by. But there is that question, and I don't think it's a paradox. When you got 59% of Canadians saying that, yeah, this is serious, but at the same time, 56% saying, no, I don't think this is going to bring down the government. I, I, I think it's serious. And, yeah, I, I, I also don't think, at least at this point, that this is going to bring down the government. Things could change. Make no mistake, right? And when it comes to a minority government, there's always an inherent degree of uncertainty, even amid a pandemic. I don't think anybody wants an election right now. I don't know that the idea of having a fall election is a good idea. I think there's a lot of concern still about how things are going to unfold in the U.S. when they go to the polls in November. Maybe we would do well to avoid an election this year. But look, that doesn't give the government a free pass either. So if the liberals are thinking that, look, the other parties don't want an election and we can push and push and push, that could backfire. So I, I think they should be careful. And, and I don't think they should take anything for granted. Same thing with the conservatives. I think the conservatives are are leery about an election and they're going through a leadership change. But they shouldn't back off either, right, just because of those considerations. I think they need to to keep the liberals' feet to the fire on this. So this will be an interesting week as far as this story is concerned. And it will definitely keep it in the headlines. Uh, According to this poll, now, you know, you could look at this in one way and say, well, maybe this is good news for the liberals. 16% of Canadians say ethics and corruption is one of their top three issues. That's not a big number. But at the same time, look, you go back to to the other findings, people are still paying attention. If you ask Canadians what their top one or two issues are, they're probably going to say COVID-19 and the economy. But that doesn't mean that, A, they approve of how the liberals are handling those two things, and B, it doesn't mean they're not paying attention to this We Charity scandal. So certainly I think something for, for the government to be concerned about. And look, th- this, is, this is on them, right? Th- this is totally an own goal. This whole situation uh, came about through their own actions and their own bad decisions. So this is all on them. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I could see a lot of ways where this does get worse for the government. Is, you know, even over the last couple of weeks, everything that's come out about this. 
uh, our guest hinted at it, story in the Globe and Mail today uh, about Michelle Douglas, who was set to testify this week before this Commons Committee, former chair of We Charities Board of Directors. Uh, story in the Globe and Mail here says, um, Michelle Douglas says she resigned from her position after concerning developments at the organization and that her exit was not part of a routine process. Her comments come after the charity said its board turnover earlier this year was part of a long plan change. She said, my resignation as chair of the board of directors was a result of concerning developments. I did not resign in the ordinary course of matters. It's the first time she's spoken publicly about the circumstances of her resignation, and she will testify the Commons Finance Committee. Uh, looks as though that's probably going to be tomorrow. So she might have some very interesting things to say, shaping up what could be a significant week on this front. A lot of people have been asking about uh, the, the cloud seeding, the hail suppression uh, in Alberta. You know, with some of the storms we've had recently and, and another one just on Friday, uh, there have been a lot more questions recently about it. That, you know, what is it they do? Um, you know, what, what goes into to cloud seeding? What kind of an impact does it have or potentially have? And I think some people wondering with some of the big hail storms we've seen, that have we not had uh, enough of that going on? Well, look, the, the cloud seeders have been, uh, from what I understand, pretty busy so far this, this season. Obviously, with that big hail storm on June 13th, and we've had a few since then. But I did want to find out more about, you know, what goes into all of this? What's involved in, in this project? What kind of an impact can it have and does it have? So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Terry Krause, who's Project Director with the Alberta Severe Weather Management Society. Terry, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, so, so a lot of questions I, I think people have about how this all works. So why, why don't I give you a chance, first of all, just tell us a bit more about the society itself, how it operates, and, and what, what it is you, you're tasked with doing. Okay. Well, the Alberta Sphere Weather Management Society was created back in 1995 in order to start the program, and um, we started doing the cloud seeding for hail suppression in 1996, um, completely funded by the insurance industry here in Alberta. And the reason uh, that the insurance industry um, uh, started it was because of uh, the severe hailstorm that uh, occurred earlier in Calgary, causing over $340 million damage. And then the insurance industry uh, did some research and uh, learned about the Alberta Hail Project, which was run by the Alberta Research Council based out of Edmonton, and... Uh, uh, here in central Alberta, and um, I was actually involved um, in with the Alberta Hale Project from 1974 to the early 80s, and wow. there it was funded by Alberta Agriculture Government in order to reduce hail damage to crops. And, um, and uh, there was a lot of research, and uh, the results weren't negative, and, uh, however, the program was cancelled in the early 1980s as cutbacks in government spending. But the final report from the Alberta Research Council was they said, our cloud seeding reduces crop damage by at least 20%. So the um, insurance industry dis did investigations, and they said, well, we... We should try the cloud seeding again, but this time to seed all the storms that threaten cities and towns here in central Alberta, and uh, we will fund it. It's 100% privately funded, and it started in 1996, and they originally said, well, we'll do a five-year contract to see if it works. Well, it was renewed four times, and this mm -hmm. is year number 25 <laughs> wow. because um, we're not doing uh, research, although all our radar data is recorded, and the staff is less, and we're applying it. I mean, but um, I'll let you know that um, uh, the sev hail severity appears to have increased, and a 1% reduction in severe damage 
pays for the program and uh, analyzing and uh, analysis of our radar data that I've done definitely shows uh, that our cloud seeding uh, can reduce the severity, reduce the intensity. It doesn't eliminate the hail, but uh, there is uh, hail damage reduction and uh, that's why it has continued for 25 years privately funded by the insurance industry. Okay, so explain how it works. So this involves planes going up, and uh, I, I believe it's uh, silver iodide that, that's used. Correct. Right? Uh, so, yeah, silver, explain how that, that works then. Silver iodide flares. We do not dispense massive amounts of chemical because uh, we release flares and uh, drop little flare pellets, silver iodide, into rising feeder clouds in the new growth zone of hailstorms and we seed at minus 10 and because silver and the flares drop down into the cloud and they initiate ice they start forming ice crystals at minus 4 celsius and we uh, our research and even research that i did with the alberta research council we had cloud physics aircraft and we would detect it we would instead of zero ice at minus 10 by dropping flares we would get 100 ice crystals per liter of cloud air and the ice crystals grow and uh, deplete the liquid water and mother nature normally in the summer right feeder clouds will produce one ice crystal per liter of cloudy air at minus 20. So that's why there's so much super cooled water. But when we seed lots of ice crystals and it depletes the liquid water but forms small ice, ice pellets that either falls as pea-sized hail or smaller or totally melts and falls as, as rain. So all of this cloud seeding um, it, it improves the rain process, and that depletes the uh, hail process. Okay, very interesting. Now, how talk about the response then. I mean, in terms of how quickly you need to get planes up in the sky, and at what point you need to, to sort of zero in on these clouds, what, what, what's the timeline like? Okay. Well, good question. And we operate our own uh, weather radar uh, based at the Old Stitchbury Airport. And by the way, we have five cloud seeding aircraft, three based at the Springbank Airport west of Calgary, and two at the Red Deer Airport. And our Hale Alley is here in central Alberta, and we will seed any potentially severe thunderstorm, the ones that can produce hail, from Okotoks or High River in the south to Pinocchio in the north, because Hail Alley is between that in central Alberta, and, and unfortunately this year Hail Alley is, is right, including Calgary. And so um, what we do is uh, we have daily weather forecasts and, uh, and, and good forecasting. And when we think severe storms are possible or we see them popping on the radar, we will launch one or two aircraft to either patrol or if the cloud if, uh, storm intensifies, we start seeding. And most of the time, I mean quite frequently, the storms form in the foothills because that's, there's an easterly wind and uh, there's some rising, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the air rises and the forms form and then they track to the east. Okay. The, the problem is June 13th, that severe storm formed over southeast Calgary. And um, we had two aircraft up because uh, we thought there was a line of cells uh, coming from the south, yeah. but they responded immediately and started seeding that storm. Uh, but the problem, the issue is, it was a severe storm and it was intensifying and there were um, stratiform rain showers uh, it, across Calgary to Strathmore and this intensifying storm sucked in the rain particles of the, uh, of 
just off of northeast Calgary, the rain, light rain between Calgary and Strathmore. It mm-hmm. sucked it in, and unfortunately, our cloud seeding can't suppress the growth of those particles because they're in the main updraft, and we're mm-hmm. seeding the new growth zone. And that is why the ex- super large hail uh, fell. And this type of situation, unfortunately, it has been documented in the past with research, and scientists have said most hail embryos will form in the new growth zone from feeder clouds. However, if other clouds merge with a mature or intensifying cell, then those particles go on different trajectories and can grow to giant size. And unfortunately, that's what happened. Yeah, which which can happen, as you say. I mean, this is Hale Alley, uh, the most intense part in, in the entire country, as I understand. And it, it's been a busy year, hasn't it? Um, yes, it has. <laughs> um, our project, we start June 1, and it goes to September 15th. Um, uh, we keep track of everything, and uh, our average number of hail days, I mean, in the past 25 years, is 42 hail days. Well, we've already had 25 hail days, and we only seed thunderstorms that threaten towns or cities and might be damaging hail. We have seeded on 18 days and have seeded 60 storms, but we have already had three days with golf ball size hail in our project area and two days with larger than golf ball size hail. So unfortunately, it has been a severe an intense day and uh, because we've had this trough of low pressure over us for weeks now and today he had finally moved to the east and we're having a clear nice day with a little bit warmer and quote no severe storms today. Well, let's enjoy while it lasts. I'm sure we'll, we'll be back into the storms at some point here. Terry, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and really giving us a good overview of, of how this project works. Really appreciate this. Well, I'm happy to do it. My pleasure. All right. You're all the best to you, Terry. Take care. Bye. That's uh, Terry Krauss, uh, Project Director with the Alberta Severe Weather Management Society. So a bit of the history on how far back cloud seeding goes in Alberta. And so the society as it exists now, and it's been there for, what, about 25 years uh, and funded by the insurance industry, right? And that's where they see that that's, that's a good investment on their part, right? If you can minimize or at least reduce the severity of those hailstorms, y- you know, you, you're obviously, uh, you're, you're going to want to do that. So, but look, as, as he pointed out, and as we all saw on June 13th, I mean, you know, these storms can come on fast and there can be real challenging conditions uh, that can make it difficult uh, to get in and, and respond effectively. So I know there have been a lot of questions about that storm in particular and just questions in general on how this works. And yeah, Alberta's the only province that has a project like this in place. And, and I guess for good reason. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.